Yeah, no, I think that's a super fascinating area of research. You mentioned just like neuroprotectiveness across beyond just anti-anxiety. I think there's interesting data coming out of uh, ketogenic diets being protective for traumatic brain injury, concussion, etc. I think, I mean, it just sounds like, uh, yeah, ketones uh, are good for the brain in a lot of different ways beyond just anti-anxiety. I mean, I think there's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's just like a, a bunch of interesting use cases. Yeah, and I think inflammation may be uh, so. In a, when you get a traumatic brain injury or concussion, the brain is under energetic stress, and there may be uh, if it's the impact is hard enough, it may cause uh, a dysregulation of various enzymes like P, uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex (PDH). Kind of activity shuts down and. You get an internalization of like the GLUT3 transporter, which may prevent the brain from being able to use glucose as an energy source. Right. And right. ketones can bypass PDH and, and can uh, they, they have about a third of the steps that's necessary to get into the cell to be used for energy, you know, if you break yep. it down. So they can readily cross, you know, membranes via the NCT transporter and be used uh, for fuel. And that that provides, that's an acute benefit. So if you have a soldier that gets a TBI, uh, it would make sense from my perspective, which may be biased because I'm a ketone researcher, to give that soldier like IV ketones. And it just makes sense. Yeah. And then that may attenuate the, uh, the process of, you know, associated with neuroinflammation. So a lot of the, the downstream consequences of a TBI result in and from uh, neuroinflammation. And part of that neuroinflammation is thought to be due to the NLRP3 inflammasome activation. And it's been right. shown that beta-hydroxybutyrate yeah, can suppress group, that. I think you collaborated with, right? Yeah, elevated yeah. BHB depresses that. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think it's just like there's starting to be more and more research in this space. And I think yeah. I want to just piggyback off, off what you said with uh, glucose uptake being... Uh, inhibited potentially by a, t a TBI. I think that's some of the interests around Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, where, you know, some, some schools of thought is that those are metabolic syndromes, glucose uptake issues, and if you're feeding with ketones, you might be able to ameliorate some of those conditions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even Cunane is actually doing some really, uh, what I would say, cutting-edge research on that, where he does um, uh, a dual PET scan, meaning that he images the uh, the metabolism of glucose using fluorodeoxyglucose and also uh, a radio labeled acetoacetate molecule uh, on the, and, and he can simultaneously or kind of in tandem or uh, show the metabolism the changes in metabolism from um, uh, glucose and, and ketones and and how that is impacted uh, with mild cognitive impairment for example and uh, and in response to different uh, uh, eating paradigms, to, to uh, his the general like take home from his work is that uh, short-term ketosis can increase uh, you know brain energy metabolism and uh, and that ketones can essentially uh, help to restore brain energy metabolism when there's a, a decrease in, or an impairment in glucose flux or glucose metabolism uh, in, in the brain. And he's done some elegant work and, um, on that, and uh, I think it's really promising the direction that he's going into. And I think we really should probably focus uh, our efforts in, in understanding how ketone metabolism is impacted in, in the context of glucose metabolism. Too, and, and how the how the body uses both of these fuels, maybe one more preferentially than the other, uh, under certain conditions, uh, and that may change with development. From we know that babies use ketones for fuel, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, adolescents, you know, probably a, a different uh, mix of fuels. And, and as we age, it appears that our capacity to use glucose decreases with age. But his uh, doctor maybe that's because we're just insulin resistant, maybe. It might be. Just yep. Yeah. Or it's something else. Yeah. No, insulin resistance yeah. in the brain. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, so, so that's that's an area of intense investigation. And I know, you know, I, I always think of Alzheimer's disease as kind of like uh, brain injury 
uh, or, or I think of brain injury really as Alzheimer's disease in, in real time, right? So after you get uh, an impact uh, in, in the brain and uh, the best indicator of someone recovering from traumatic brain injury, uh, the best index of assessing that person would be an FTG PET scan. And that PET scan may actually look very similar to an Alzheimer's patient. It'll be very dim. So it, there, there's some correlations in regards to the etiology is obviously different, right? But from a metabolic standpoint, you have kind of a, a similar metabolic uh, pathophysiology going on with impaired brain energy metabolism um, so that uh, it kind of lends itself to uh, this idea of, you know, re- reestablishing normal brain energy metabolism and the ability of your brain to kind of clear out debris and to clear out, you know, toxic byproducts of, of you know, uh, a traumatic brain injury like all the plaque, is energy. Like the tau plaque. Right, right. It's, it's, yeah, it's amyloid right? tau. I think that it, right? It's, I think people would say like, oh, is, is, is amyloid and tau, are, are those the root cause or is because your brain, your neurons don't, aren't fueled by glucose properly. They can't clear that out naturally. So is, is, is yeah, it's metabolic dysfunction, the core root cause, I think is like the interesting open question. Yeah, that, that is the, the etiology of Alzheimer's is still kind of largely unknown and debated, but it makes sense yeah. that if you have impaired energy, brain energy metabolism, you can, get the accumulation of these toxic plaques because breaking down and clearing uh, amyloid is a very energy dependent process. And if there's a a decrease in in those processes that can result in the accumulation of of these toxic proteins. Uh, There's some, I don't know, it's kind of fringe uh, area of research, but there's some indication that uh, perhaps different microbes whether it be bacteria, maybe even uh, uh, Lyme's disease uh, causes this persistent neuroinflammation, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus. These things may cause like a persistent neuroinflammation and the amyloid plaque production, uh, amyloid is antimicrobial and the brain may be producing excess amyloid and maybe not clearing it to uh, as as a response to the inflammation. Huh. Yeah. And, Interesting. you know, I, I was, when I, f- I was first told this, I thought it was <laughs> really uh, not a very compelling argument, but the more I, I look into it now and the more, you know, uh, discussion around like Lyme disease and neurodegenerative disorders, there tends to, there tends to be uh, a growing uh, kind of emerging data to support this idea that uh, perhaps things that cause a chronic inflammatory state, especially a neuroinflammatory state, may be contributing to uh, to Alzheimer's disease. And and then you have you know genetic if you're APOE4 positive or something, you know you have some clear uh, you know genetic influences on that too right. yeah no I, I think there's i mean i think that's why biology so i mean there's just a ton of open questions i want to shift gears a little bit towards we've touched upon um i, I think we, we we've covered just a lot of why elevating our ketone levels could be beneficial yeah. for a lot of indications and, and and to optimize human performance and i think we touched upon different one ways we can do that and, and just as a quick overview, right? I think a lot of the reason why our community and myself have been intermittent fasting has been to do that. But as you, as we all know, it's, it's really hard. I don't think it's really hard, but it is, it, it takes active effort to do fasting or to eat low carb, high fat or eat a ketogenic diet. And I think that's why there's a lot of excitement and, and, and a lot of research, um, around exogenous ketones, which is external ketones, ketone supplements, as opposed to endogenous ketones, what your body naturally produces. Um, so it sounds like the current universe of ketone supplements, two broad, bu- I guess three broad buckets. You have, um, I guess, ketogenic fats, fats that are more optimized to turning into ketones to your liver, but there is some sort of conversion process. So things like MCT oil, C8, C10, different different carbon length chains of, 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 uh, of, of fat. Uh, you have ketone salts, uh, as you mentioned, one of the first salts you looked at, sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate, <laughs> and you have another category, ketone esters. Um, and it sounds like uh, you've been not just looking at 
the, at them individually, but also like mixing and, and trying to generate uh, optimal blends, if, if you will, for different use cases. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it's also just interesting because I think when people talk about ketones, uh, people don't, I mean, there's some subtlety. There's, you know, three ketone bodies. One isn't used acetone, which you breathe out. And then there's two beta hydroxybutyrate, as we mentioned, and then uh, acetoacetate, which have different properties. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to just, you know, I, I think it's, I think the literature out there is not very clear, not very thoughtful about just, just actually, you know, going through and, and, and talking about these as different things. I mean, I think they all kind of going for the same goal, but I think it just all kind of uh, jumbled together. as like, Oh, uh, this, this kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think people are kind of confused too. Um, so yeah. it may be good to just kind of do like a, little refresher course on uh, kind of exogenous ketones 101 sort of <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, so yeah and people have described you know uh caprylic triglyceride which is the c8 the eight carbon medium chain triglyceride or capric which is you know octanoic acid or um uh, C10, and these are have a capacity to generate ketones independent of calorie restriction and independent of carbohydrate restriction. So they are kind of like maybe your first and foremost, maybe like a, almost like a poor man's ketone ester, right? So you can you can take caprylic triglyceride and get your ketone levels up maybe about one millimolar. Uh, you know, I can actually get it up to about like 1.5 on C8 alone. Uh, I've been taking it for a while, and I think I've built up a sort of a tolerance to it. So if I just take pure C8 oil, um, yeah, I can boost it an extra. Like, yeah, 1. and I think the tolerance 5. is a good good point because uh, we've been playing around with you know C8 and, and other exogenous ketones, and if you don't have a tolerance to it, you will blow out your guts. I mean, people, some of our colleagues here just yeah. uh, were out of commission. So it does not to, not necessarily take to be taken lightly where it's just like more is better. Yeah. You know, uh, there's ways to also increase your, uh, you know, your tolerance to C8. So maybe some things I can't necessarily discuss, but there are certain types of fiber, uh, protein and, and amino acids that can allow you to, for example, you know, double, maybe even triple your tolerance to caprylic triglycerides. So, right. you know, you can leverage various formulations to be able to. Uh, right. What's a rule of thumb? Is it, it, I think what numbers I've seen. I don't. I don't. I haven't seen the raw data. Is that around ten percent of C eight gets converted into, you know, ketones, where the other ninety percent gets uh, directly metabolized as you know, through fat. I mean, used used as like free fatty acids. It feeds your cells directly. Is that is that is that is that about right? Around most of it gets just used as as fat, uh, and then that, in the mitochondria, and then some gets converted to ketones. Yeah, you know what? That is like highly dependent upon the energetic state of the liver, whether it's depleted in uh, whether you're in a fasting state, it's depleted in glycogen, or uh, or even the the subject themselves. Like you can have. Uh, one person's beta oxidation of, of fats in the liver may be very, very high, and uh, they they rapidly, you know, oxidize. They use it all, the, yeah, use it all up directly. Yeah, and, and they you know make a lot of acetyl CoA, and that can then you know feed into the reaction to uh, first acetoacetate, and and they might be a, a better a better metabolizer of MCT. And I think you can build up that metabolism over time. I mean, I remember just like keeling over the first time I tried to consume like 40 milliliters of, of MCT. I mean, my liver couldn't handle it. It was almost like a, huh. a bolus to the liver. And, and <laughs> I don't know if my pancreas was contracting or uh, my gallbladder contracting or something. So uh, it, I just had a lot of abdominal pain when that happened. Actually, interestingly, I just taught the GI section to the, the med students here and, and and, and dug a little bit more into the research, and I, I think MCTs don't really uh, stimulate CCK, cholecystokinin, which is which would be responsible for contracting the gall, gallbladder, like long chain fatty acids do, but MCTs kind of technically don't. It's kind of an interesting. I, I always assume they did, but uh, literature that suggests 
that, that it doesn't. So they're metabolized very differently than long-chain fatty acids, which are, you know, packaged into chylomicrons, and then they enter the lymphatic system and kind of they, they go that route where when you consume medium-chain triglycerides or even short-chain, uh, they are sent to the liver via hepatic portal circulation, so it becomes like a bolus of fat right to your liver. <laughs> and your liver may not be ready for that. Right. So, uh, but, but I believe, you know, the liver is a tremendously plastic organ, and, and I think it's very rich in mitochondria. When, when I did mitochondrial isolation studies, like, we would take the liver, and it's just chock full of mitochondria, right? So it, it has right. the capacity to kind of upregulate its uh, fat oxidation uh, uh, processes over time. And, right. um, you know, th- that's what I believe, and I think we actually want to run some studies to see you know, to, to validate that or quantify that. And that'll give us a little right. bit of insight. So anyway, just kind of getting a little bit off topic, but, uh, but right. yeah, the medium MCTs can elevate ketones and be ketogenic independent of carbohydrate restriction. Uh, the next like exogenous ketone, uh, you might, I guess like number two, I would say number three would be the most potent, um, if you're doing it that way would be the ketone esters, but like the, the second most potent would be the ketone salts. Uh, for now, it's possible maybe that they can be formulated into a mixture that would be on par with potency with a ketone ester. But really, you're always going to be dealing with kind of a mineral load in the gut. And your your gut's capacity to uh, to, to transport uh, these minerals, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium, especially ca- uh, magnesium too, and uh, potassium uh, can be an issue. So the the a ketone salt would be uh, a ketone salt could actually be sodium free. So which was I, I was testing that not too long ago. Just versions of ketone salts that had no sodium in it. Yeah. Uh, I can or tell just, you that yeah. pretty much all. I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Um, go ahead. So for the ketone salts, it's 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 instead of having to convert fat into like beta hydroxybutyrate right now, you have just the BHB directly binded to a mineral or an, uh, an anion um, to, uh, that, that delivers into your body. So you're binding something of the raw ketone itself. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to, I also was curious, I just seen a lot of ketone salts are just beta hydroxybutyr. Why aren't there acetoacetate salts? That's kind of a side question, but. Yeah, there um, are acetoacetate salts. Uh, I have, well, we, we make like a sodium acetoacetate salt, but it's not real stable. So we will mix it up fresh and use it for like electrophysiology studies, like then and there. Okay. And uh, um, the more stable uh, acetoacetate salt would be lithium, a lithium salt of acetoacetate, and and that's that's also another salt that we use in our experiments. Uh, so the the issue with acetoacetate is that it's not as stable as beta hydroxybutyrate, and it can spontaneously decarboxylate to acetone. Uh, but interestingly, uh, and, and that's probably why the predominant ketone in your blood is beta-hydroxybutyrate simply due to, uh, it, it's much more stable, right? And, but beta-hydroxybutyrate needs to be converted to acetoacetate really to be broken down for energy. So it's, it's like the beta-hydroxybutyrate is kind of like an intermediate <laughs> step in, in the ketone, uh, transport and, and ketone metabolism. Uh, it has some unique properties in and of itself and, and signaling and stuff too. Uh, but the acetone is not really just a waste product because the acetone uh, can impact, can have signaling properties uh, on its own. It can, for example, uh, contribute to the opening of a potassium channel uh, in, in, on neurons and the, an opening of a potassium channel will cause uh, a hyperpolarization of the resting membrane potential, which can help preserve um, sort of the bioenergetic effects of the cell and, and prevent uh, some of the consequences of glutamate-induced hyper-excitability because uh, glutamate can depolarize the membrane potential and it, as it becomes more depolarized, then you become, it becomes more neurotoxic once, it really t- uh, once neurons get to a certain level of depolarization that can even trigger programmed cell death. So, uh, Interesting. It, yeah, and, and that's, that's actually a pretty big area of the research that we're doing now is 
looking at acetoacetate and uh, and acetone uh, and and sub sub narcotic levels of acetone, right? Because acetone, we know acetone is something that can take off your uh, nail polish, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's high, nail high levels. polish remover. It's nail polish remover. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, low levels, like, you know, sub-narcotic levels, if it gets up too high, low levels can have really interesting effects on neuronal signaling. And that's uh-huh. uh, something that I've been kind of getting more into. Uh, Maybe that's why when people are, like, huffing nail polish remover, they're getting some, some, <laughs> some psychoactive effect there. I mean, interesting. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Anyway. So that's, uh, you know, one of, when it comes to anti-seizure effects of exogenous ketones, it's really important to, uh, to have a exogenous ketone that elevates, uh, acetoacetate, um, just because that has been linked to the, uh, anti-seizure, uh, effects. And, uh, so, so yeah, we're, we're yeah. studying, uh, various forms of, of ketone esters right. that uh, can elevate. Yeah, I, I want to drive it back to ketone salts before dripping yeah. over the ketone esters. Yeah. So yeah, I think you were, we, we got a lot of sidetracked with just like all the things you can bind to beta-hydroxybutyrate to make a ketone salt. But I think some of the downsides, as I think you were mentioning, is that oftentimes you don't want that much minerals, um, whether that's sodium, magnesium, calcium, you know, as as, as yeah. sort of like a carrier of beta hydroxybutyrate into into the into the body. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. Uh, you know, lithium. I mentioned too. You can make a lithium salt of beta hydroxybutyrate, and then uh, the alkaline amino acids too uh, can be. You can make them. Uh, arginine, uh, lysine, citrulline, uh, histine. Uh, there, there's a bunch. There's uh, like okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of things are bound. You can bind a lot of things. Yeah, but the the monovalent di- uh, monovalent cations like sodium and potassium, you know, you, it'll bind one beta hydroxybutyrate. But the divalent cations like magnesium and and or uh, potassium and sodium, yeah, are are monovalent and they can get one beta hydroxybutyrate, whereas magnesium and calcium can bind two molecules of beta hydroxybutyrate. So that um, in theory, that should increase their capacity to elevate uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. But if you just take them in isolation, there's not, you know, a, a dose-dependent response in elevation of blood ketones, and that has to do with their uh, probably with their GI intolerability. So that it becomes yep. very important to be able to formulate things and to test them. Uh, in many different ways to determine what is you can actually uptake it. Yeah, you just don't yeah. overload and you just like you know yeah. pee it all out. You actually can take it in. And sodium is yeah. important because pretty much every transporter in the gut, whether it be amino acid transporter or even sodium transporter, uh, it is is a transporter with sodium. So the sodium ion gradient is actually what drives the the movement of molecules across. Uh, the brush border membrane there. So um, if so, having a lot of sodium in in the product is actually a pretty good thing for uh, bioavailability, for enhancing absorption. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm not I'm not of the opinion that sodium is actually uh, something that's dangerous for our health. Uh, I, it can be maybe if you're like a type two diabetic or you have some kind of kidney problems, but I can tell you that, you know, it's for kidney problems, it's really the amount of substrate that's in your blood. I mean, to some point, it, it's the minerals too, but like high blood glucose will kill your kidneys faster than yeah. uh, ketones or even even minerals. Yeah, right? I mean, I think it's like, it's like the high salt argument, which, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't have a, I'm not, you know, well-versed enough there to, to really, you know, come on either side. But like, I guess, I guess what you're driving towards is that there's like this school of thought that high sodium, high salt is maybe bad for blood pressure or some of these other things. And I, I guess there's an alternative score or a separate score where it's like, hey, high sodium levels aren't the, aren't, aren't the root cause here. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that. And I think what we know about salt is sodium chloride and sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate is much different than sodium chloride. I mean, I have not been able to, I thought I could maybe get a transient elevation of blood 
uh, pressure with sodium uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, but that does not you happen. You weren't lifting blood pressure. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that does not, so sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate does not, so I think with salt, we're talking about table salt, it may be the chloride too, the chloride, the sodium chloride, uh, but you know, we know from, you know, renal physiology, if we deliver sodium chloride with an equal amount of potassium, we can abolish the transient sodium-induced increase in blood pressure with that if we simply offset it. So that was kind of the rationale, uh, you know, with, with developing the, the ketone salts too, is that you need to balance the sodium with an equal amount of potassium. And, right. uh, but if you just Which take sodium, it's like a buffer, it's essentially, it's like a buffer when you do like product development, you have, you often see like yeah. potassium chloride or sorbate in there. And that's like a preservative. It's, it's, it's like a common buffer to, to balance out the, 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 yeah, the acid, acidity based, you know, basic yeah. levels. Yeah, so just adding, you know, people talk about alkaline water, so drink alkaline water. Because, uh, well, if you just drink a glass of uh, tap water and just take, you know, potassium, potassium. citrate or something, yeah. that'll be far more alkaline than, you know, probably any alkaline water you're buying out there. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah potassium and, and, and just minerals in general have a pretty remarkable buffering uh, capacity, as do some amino acids, too. Uh, so yeah, you have, you know, sodium and potassium, uh, magnesium and calcium and these things, we do not yet know the ideal ratios for these to be, uh, you know, formulated to optimize the, the ketone salt, uh, intake. And we, we do know though, that if you formulate a ketone salt, uh, product and then you combine that ketone salt with medium chain triglycerides, you can, you know, get significantly elevated, uh, you know, blood ketone levels above and beyond what you could with either one alone. And that, that becomes a kind of important, uh, the, the MCTs will, uh, delay gastric absorption a little bit. And that I think by delaying gastric absorption, that slows down gastric transit time and it allows for more of the sodium salts to be absorbed, uh, because they're not, you know, going all the way down to the to the large intestine and colon and being shot out the other side, right? So, uh, so you have, you know, your, your, the fats tend to decrease uh, peristalsis and to some extent, and you have a delayed gastric uh, uh, ab absorption with that. Um, so we're still like messing around with different types of medium chain fats and, you know, with different types of fiber and even with amino acids to optimize uh, absorption on that. But I think it's, we're getting to the point where you can, you know, reliably get to two to three millimolar with a sodium uh, or with a, a ketone salt product uh, that's formulated with ketogenic fats. So they're actually getting to the point where, you know, I've taken ketone esters and wouldn't want to go over three. When I get above three millimolar, I just don't, I, I don't feel good. I start to actually maybe even get more anxious. I think, I think hmm. two may be at the top of the bell-shaped curve. And once you get above that, your body, you're getting uh, a mild acid load that the body has to deal with. And, uh, and if it's not being used for fuel and you're just, you know, sitting at your desk and you're not, uh, maybe if you were kind of hard charging, uh, you know, with, with exercise, that might be different because you're utilizing it. But, you know, I think... That's interesting. I think for me personally, getting, I think I'll get to two and a half millimole with three-ish days of fasting uh -huh. i'll hit five five point five with seven days of fast seven days fasted yeah um i think yeah i think getting i don't know i mean i think it's all sub, like it's a little bit subjective but it seems like i i'm more in flow state when i'm closer to the five than than the than the two two and a half but i, I think there's Yes, your mileage may vary in terms of just how everyone's bow, yeah. you know. I was talking about you know, exogenous, so yeah. in the context of fasting yeah. where you have limited, uh, restricted glucose availability, I think maybe those levels may be optimal when you're at like an energy deficit. But I think if you're just eating like a eucaloric diet that's, you know, just general low carb, like most people are doing, and they want to take a ketone right. supplement, I think pushing your levels you know, even above two may not even be optimal because I'm just going upon, you know, the, the work that we've done here. Like when I, if I artificially push it up, 
you know, one and, and start to go above two into the three range, I just start to feel unwell. And, you know, uh, it's not, it's not the mineral load from the, uh, the ketone salts too, because I could use the ketone esters and I can use a number of different esters and kind of yeah. feel the same way. Once yeah, I we get into that talked range. about esters quite a bit. Can you, can you help us define in esters? And I think there's, oh, there's multiple yeah. classes. Yeah, mo there's also multiple ketone esters, just like there's multiple ketone salts. And I think that's like another aspect that I think is very unclear in, in the literature out today. Um, yep. Yeah, okay. I, I think there's, I, I would say that I think the most two most studied ketone esters are uh, the beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester. And I think there's also, I, I think, and also just merging literature around uh, acetoacetate diester. Could you help, you know, break yeah. that down and... And, and talk through it. Yeah, and uh, you know maybe one of the the first esters I was kind of got interested in was a triester of glycerol. So glycerol mm -hmm. with three beta hydroxybutyrates on it, and that's uh, another you know thing that we test in the lab. Uh, yeah, but I would say the ones that are probably are of most interest would be one three butane diol. Uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester, and 1,3-butane-diol uh, acetoacetate uh, diester. Um, so I've, you know, we have experience with, with both of them for, uh, so I, I guess 1,3-butane-diol is kind of, I would describe it as an alcohol. It's a, it's a glycol, like a, it's technically a di-alcohol, and you can, uh, you can do a, a reaction where you do a transesterification reaction, you can combine uh, acetoacetate uh, to it, essentially, and, and get two molecules of acetoacetate on 1,3-butanediol, and that would be a uh, acetoacetate diester, a 1,3-butanediol acetoacetate diester. And when that's mm -hmm. consumed, uh, the the ketones are, are liberated through with hydrolysis in the gut, and they can enter your circulation very rapidly. So you get a, a pretty, from a pharmacokinetic curve point of view, a very rapid spike in acetoacetate, right. which we've found is uh, essential to get the neuroprotective anti-seizure effects that we're looking right. for. That spike in acetoacetate right. is necessary. Um, and so, so, like the main difference um, in, in between the lines here is that. You, you don't need to carry uh, a, a cation carrier like a like a like a mineral or a, or, a, or an amino acid to carry the, the the ketone into the body. You just have uh, immediate precursors, if not the actual uh, ketone itself, being able to be carried into the body directly in in a bioavailable form. Uh, yes, that that's right. So with the ketone salts, you have an ionic bond that uh, yeah. the ketone would be. Uh, you know, you're, you're negative, and then the, the whether it be the, the mineral or the amino acid has a positive charge. So you right. have, um, and, and then that, when you ingest it, it becomes liberated, the, the mineral, you know, from, from the beta-hydroxybutyrate, and it enters circulation. Right. So with a ketone ester, there, there is an ester bond there, and there has, there's various esterase enzymes in the gut and in the liver. Uh, and even in the muscle too, uh, throughout throughout circulation in your blood, even. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, very. It's a very. It's the body knows how to break it down to directly yeah. into. Yep. Usable parts. Yep. And uh, so yeah, we consume a ketone ester, and typically what happens, whether it's a beta hydroxybutyrate ester or an acetoacetate ester, the ketones are rapidly liberated from the one three butane diol. And, uh, and the 1,3-butanediol is a ketogenic compound in that it gets broken down pretty much completely to beta-hydroxybutyrate. So uh, it's right, kind of convenient yeah. in that way. Yeah. You could uh, conceivably just take 1,3-butanediol, and uh, it's pretty potent ketogenic, nasty-tasting ketogenic <laughs> agent, but uh, there's but a, a lot of drunk. research behind it. Right, but you'll get drunk first, right? Because it is an alcohol, so you get drunk, but then you have super high ketone levels. Is is, is my understanding? So you get you get the you get the alcohol plus the ketones. You get you a little bit buzzed. One three butane dial. Yeah, 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 you do get a little bit buzzed, and and you could say, well, uh, and, and maybe combining it, you know, with a with a ketone molecule may attenuate a little bit of that buzz. But I can just tell you from experience, once you start dosing up the, the ketone, whether it be acetoacetate or uh, 
beta-hydroxybutyrate ketones, you start to get a little bit buzz, especially around like the five millimolar point. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if it's, it's not like a, it, it's a, in some ways it's a little bit like an alcohol buzz, but it's not, it's not the same, I think. And I think, it, I don't think it's a healthy state. It's a state that I don't like to be in because I think it's just adding more energy to your system and your body has to deal with the, with the acidosis and it can't be a good thing. So that's why I'm kind of of the opinion uh, the maximum tolerable dose is no way the, the optimal dose. And I think the optimal dose may actually be closer along the lines of like the minimum effective dose and slightly above that, you know, so you're keeping your body kind of hungry for the ketones instead of saturating everything uh, with, with surplus calories of ketones, which I think can, if done continuously over a long period of time, may actually cause some problems. Uh, you know, there, there's some evidence that, you know, with the, even the, the racemic form, so that, that's a whole nother thing that we, we can kind of yeah, talk it's a about. Whole nother, yeah. It's a whole nother can of worms talking about, yeah. you know, DNL forms, left-handed, right-handed versions of organic compounds. Yeah. So, uh, so with, yeah, so with the ketone esters, it, unless it's a glycerol, like triester, beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, then, and no, actually, I think the, the glycerol triester is also racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ones that are being kind of in studies right now. So, yeah, so there's a little bit of discussion as to, you know, is racemic uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, something that you should be concerned about? And I think it's a good right. question. I, I don't think the evidence now uh, supports that it that it's in any way uh, harmful. Uh, that you know it's been used. There's a you know, Lancet paper by Van Hove, I believe, that studied DL uh, beta hydroxybutyrate salt, sodium beta hydroxybutyrate, the racemic for multiple acyl CoA dehydrogenase deficiency or MAD. And in that study, if I remember correctly, it had a number of kids in the study. Uh, it basically like reversed the symptoms of this disorder, and it was given it in massive doses for right. a lengthy period, like 900 milligrams per kilogram, <laughs> like every right. four hours. And it essentially um, caused it prevented cardiomyopathy and like completely almost reversed a lot of cerebral. Uh, dysfunction. So it, it's also been used, you know, that that's actually, there's studies using it in uh, IV administration too. So that, that's a really high dose and, and a number yeah, of other. No, I, I agree. I think it's open question. I think some, uh, some researchers think that the racemic form is really bad for you. I don't think there's mm -hmm. data that I've seen that says that. I, th I think, I think well, you're right. So I think it's, you know, there's, they're probably being used in a different way, but it's not necessarily it, it, it sort of seems like people have been using it safely. Um, and yeah. it doesn't seem, I think there needs to be some research to be like, okay, how are they being potentially being used different, differently from each other yeah. if they are? And I, if so, uh, yeah. is that better or worse than the, just the D form, which is how the, which is what the body naturally produces? Well, the body, you know, you also have the racemase enzyme that converts it, uh, the D form to the L form too. So you always have, the body does produce, like the L form, and and that's that's okay. being made in, in small quantities, and the tissue distribution of the racemase will kind of differ in, in different areas. Uh, so as far as the safety, I'm not concerned that there is a safety issue. Just uh, you know, you have that these ketone salt products that are on the market, and I know you know one company has sold millions of doses to I guess millions of people, and they're overdosing on this stuff. I know some of them because they're emailing me and they. There's no, you know, there's no bodies are accumulating from, you know, millions of doses being taken, maybe some GI right. discomfort. Uh, and from the blood work that I've seen people taking large amounts, you know, everything is improving. You know, if you just look at the blood work, if there was any sign of right. toxicity, you know, something would come up with millions of doses being taken. Um, so one guy did a couple uh, in particular, like one fellow emailed me and actually thought I was working with the D, the D uh, isomer, and was kind of adamant that uh, there there may be some problems even with D because uh, the, the racemic form is redox balanced, right? So if you have 
uh, a pure D uh, enantiomer, it's really shifting the NAD plus NADH couple towards a more reduced state. And many diseases are kind of associated with reductive stress, right? Like type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So if you're giving uh, an agent that's shifting the redox state of the cell, the physiology, to a more reduced state, you could get uh, reductive stress, uh, theoretically. And But with racemic, it's it's essentially redox balance hmm. in that way. So I had it. Cause... Was, wasn't the argument there is that you actually want to increase the redox span so you, you potentially have just more efficient, you carry the electrons through more efficiently so you just generate less ROS? Uh, in theory, I mean, that's kind of what I, I, that was my understanding, you know, I believe. Yeah. But there's also uh, uh, a number of, there's, there's also evidence for redox uh, stress or reductive stress. So many diseases are associated with uh, kind of our, it, the tissue is essentially hypoxic, right? So you're going to have uh, not oxidative stress, you're going to have reductive stress. And that would be mm-hmm. diseases of, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and you're kind of throwing, artificially ed- elevating something that could be inducing more reductive stress by shifting things uh, you know, shifting the redox balance to a more reduced state. So someone, you know, it's contacted me and was like sending papers, but I said, no, we actually work with the racemic, which is uh, redox balanced in that way. But I haven't seen any evidence that that would be in any way harmful. I know most of the research has been done with the racemic, so there's a pretty good track record with the racemic, but I don't, I don't know of any really long-term high-dose chronic feeding studies that have been done with the the D enantiomer in maybe disease states that would have redox stress, like uh, say 2 diabetes and things like that. So I don't know, you know, this researcher kind of reached out to me and was like, well, we haven't done enough, you know, studies with, with the D. Um, we've done pretty long-term studies, 25 grams per kilogram studies of the racemic salts in the the racemic esters for 15 weeks in rats, which is like essentially a couple of years in humans. And we did all the clinical chemistry and things like that and saw basically everything was kind of going in the, in a positive direction. So we're working on that and get that published soon. Uh, but so that, so there is you know, a little bit of debate, I guess, with the D and also maybe with the racemic. And I think what's really needed is just more studies, you know, and also to maybe to do some, studies to look at the redox state of the liver and the redox state of the cells. And, and if right. there are pathologies that are associated with the more, uh, with reductive stress, you know, to see if the, the DNA antimer contributes more to the reductive stress. Interesting. I didn't, yeah, no, I, I, that's the first time I've heard of that. I mean, it seems like that's a interesting research area. Cause I mean, that's, I think what you mentioned that, uh, the body endogenously produces the D so yeah. through fasting, et cetera. And it sounds like a small percentage uh, may convert into the L. So it seems like if, if, if fasting would, would trigger some of these same things, if just having, a, a, you know, a super reduced state could be bad. Well then going doing fasting and low carb, high fat diets would be an endogenous way to turn that, you know, get into that state, which yeah. seems to be, Right, like it wouldn't necessarily just be a problem with just D enantiomer or beta hydroxybutyrate. It'd be like all the natural pathways to elevate BHB, which the vast majority of the naturally produced BHB is D form. Yeah, yeah. I think you know the question is if you artificially kind of elevate the D form for extended periods of time uh, in a in someone that has overt signs of you know pathologies that cause reductive stress you know, what will that do? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think I think it should be studied. Uh, a lot of things should be studied, right? So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, we're doing quite a bit of work, and maybe some of the, the tissues and the blood <clears throat> that we uh, that we collect, we can go back and, and kind of look at the potential for that, because uh, my background was actually kind of, uh, it's what I teach, too, is redox biochemistry. So, uh, for me, it's, it's actually a really interesting... Um, kind of field to look at because uh, we know a lot of enzymes, a lot of signaling yep. pathways and even ion channels. One of the most fruitful 
areas of research in metabolism, right? Like I think people yeah. more and more realize that this is one of the core, this is how bodies create energy. This yep. is how this, this, this core mechanism affects basically every other process in the body. And if you can, you know, improve it, optimize it, fix it. I mean, you could potentially help or enhance a lot of end and end, end points that we, that we want to be you know solving for. Um, yeah, we need technologies to be able to uh, <laughs> to be able to in real time track, you know, measure acetoacetate beta hydroxybutyrate with something like a Dexcon. And I think uh, this has been of interest to yeah, no, like the yeah, Department of Defense. That'd be very cool. Yep. Yeah, because I wear glucose monitors that are continuous. Why? It, that's one question I've always asked. Like, why aren't there continuous ketone monitors? Yeah, well, there, there, there should be, I, I think. Yeah. And I think uh, as technology advances, you'll probably have uh, things where you put a, essentially a, a patch on your skin and little nanoprobes will be able to detect not just beta-hydroxybutyrate, but maybe actually give you a real-time metabolomic all your metabolites. lactate. Yeah, all your metabolites. Yeah, yeah yep. I, I think that would be the holy grail for me as, as a biohacker. Like I, I yeah. track my gl glucose because, I mean, di there's a medical use case there di for type 2 diabetic or just diabetics yeah. in general. But yeah, why, why not be able to track your yep. acetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, glucose? You know, lactate could be interesting as well. And just, uh, you know, learn and optimize and, and see where, what zones you want to be targeting. Like that, yeah. that seems like it will, uh, you know, that, that, should, that should be the, that's data that we should have. Like it's yeah. inevitable that we will have it at some point, but it takes it will take you know work from 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 engineers, innovators to, to make that happen. Yeah, they're they're contacting me, and I think uh, I'm still waiting to get the prototypes. But I've seen some of the prototypes that they're working on, and uh, you know it's a little bit big of a device to wear. But these things are right. in the pipeline, and I think they may allow us to optimize uh, our health and maybe our performance, and maybe. Uh, for me, I'm interested because it can protect an astronaut or a Navy SEAL diver from extreme environments if we know the neuroprotective anti-seizure, you know, levels of these. Um, yeah, you can, you can confirm they're in the right zone all the time, right? Like, okay, we yeah. want to be at least 3.0 millimolar or whatever. Yep, let's, yep. Let's stay in that zone. They can dose themselves, essentially. Um, this has been, a, you know, an awesome conversation so far. I don't want to run too over time, but I want to give you the last word here. It sounds like, uh, you know, Deep in, you know, I, I think what's interesting about your body of research is that you're pretty agnostic in terms of looking at all different types of mechanisms to elevate ketones. Where I think a lot of research groups focus on one or two specific compounds. Um, you know, what's you know, can you give us a sneak peek of you know what's the research look like in the future? What are some of the most fruitful areas that you're most excited about? Wow, I'm excited about so many different things all at once. So, uh, yeah, let me take a step. Uh, let me see. Some of the more recent data that we got is on, like, neuroregeneration and uh, looking at the effects of uh, how neurons can enhance, like, neurite outgrowth and things like that, how ketones can affect that process. And that may have implications for... Uh, you know, brain injury and, and various uh, neurodegenerative disorders. So that is, you know, something that's uh, of interest uh, to me. As, as far things that I'm like super excited about is probably we're working with NASA actually to uh, to do some research uh, in the way of metabolism, heart rate variability, gut microbiome, uh, some cognitive tests using NIH toolbox uh, to do. Uh, some measurements uh, on the NASA NEMO mission, which would be NEMO 22, is coming up. And mm. it's the Earth-based space analog uh, for, like, deep space missions, like to Mars and things like that. So, so seeing if, key, like, elevated ketone levels through some sort of exogenous ketones could make that, astronauts that more sort efficient, of, essentially. That, that's of interest, but we actually need to, before, you know, testing some of the ketone molecules, we have to find out how living in saturation in this extreme environment first affects microbiome. We know that the CO2 level in that environment is about 10 to 20 times higher, and that can actually impact uh, the gut in a way where it can impact the, uh, uh, the tight junctions and actually lead to like a leaky gut. There's some evidence of that, and there's some evidence that it can kind of cause inflammation. So we want to assess first how that 
environment, uh, which would be like uh, an astronaut environment or a, uh, a deep sea environment, how that can impact the gut microbiome and how this can impact cognitive functions. And we're going to assess body composition alterations. So we're working with them to do a, a pretty comprehensive study, you know, multiple IRBs involved in the study, and collect some data on metabolism, on, on all these different factors, cognition, body composition. And then that kind of sets the stage for uh, a countermeasure that can be used in the form of maybe not just ketones, but ketones and maybe some other metabolites or cofactors, uh, basically developing a nutritional countermeasure to uh, enhance the safety and performance uh, and long-term kind of health uh, for yeah. that individual in that environment. So that, that's sort of a yeah. project that we're working on now that I'm most excited about. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it sounds like, and, and I think I've just seen just seeing the velocity of how you've been publishing. I mean, it sounds like you, you are, uh, you know, it's quite productive and, and maybe productive because you're have elevated ketone levels <laughs> and therefore better cognition all the time. Um, I think it maybe. helps. Definitely... I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think exactly why, you know, you know, we're so interested in the space from a startup uh, 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 company perspective, as well as a community perspective. I think that's why, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think if you look at keto, if you look at, exogenous ketones these are going to be macro trends I, I see a lot of interesting innovation uh in the next few years i think definitely be something that like you look at omega-3s being commonplace as something that's like generally probably good for you the same thing will happen with exogenous ketones yeah. um so uh you know yeah, i think know, so too. curious to follow along and i think our community will be curious to follow along to see uh, how this space unfolds in the, in, in, in the very, very new futures, because I think a lot of this is happening now. Yeah, it, it's happening really fast. In the short time that I've just been on this, when I first got into this research, it was the ketogenic diet for pediatric epilepsy. And now, yeah. you know, we had a conference and there's like, you know, a dozen or more applications now that are, you know, being yeah. studied in, uh, in registered clinical trials. So there's a lot of ongoing research and you'll see all that hitting PubMed. Well, you're starting to see it now, but you'll see, uh, a heck of a lot more in the next uh, five to ten years. <laughs> yeah, awesome, Dom. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks really a pleasure to uh, to talk. And then we should we should do this again soon. We'd love to. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks. Another great conversation with another leading ketone researcher. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to, to Dom. I think we got an interesting perspective from Dr. Brianna Stubbs, which we had on uh, a, a couple uh, months ago, where. She's been out of, uh, you know, studying ketones out of an Oxford group. Um, I'm excited to see uh, how the space unfolds. I think we're, you know, as a company, very keen on looking at the latest developments there and potentially helping accelerate uh, bringing some of these technologies to market. So stay tuned there. Um, as always, uh, send us any questions you might have on ketones, biohacking, everything. Uh, we love being able to service up your questions directly to some of the best guests that we have. And as always, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, until next time.